Hey, what's going on, my money-crazed lunatics? You hear that? That's the sound of money. <laughs> and it smells pretty damn good, too. Thanks for tuning in this week, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, guys. So I'm going to do a Wall Street Junkie public account portfolio breakdown. I know you guys have been asking for it for a while now, and I figured why not do it now? You know, this is my public account, so this doesn't represent my entire portfolio, but just the portfolio that I feel comfortable being transparent in. And I've had this account disclaimer for about four years, and this represents really my strategy for the most part of consistently investing over time. You'll notice in the history, there's a few times that I sat on some cash and um, did a large inflow into the market. But since I've been in the market for, for so long and I've experienced you know, markets for as long as I have, almost seven years now, I figured now's, now's the time to really just invest even more consistently. So you'll see right now, really one big spike in 2018, I was sitting on some cash and I invested it all at one time. And then actually in 2021, earlier this year, I didn't account consolidation because I was having two stock accounts at one time. I was at a different brokerage service. I was at Fidelity. So I decided to just roll it all into one account at TD Ameritrade. But you'll see right here, the value um, right now is $270,343 in the public account. And that is as of the 16th at 11.24 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Now, just a disclaimer, when I grabbed my um, portfolio data and put it into my Excel spreadsheet, it actually showed a different picture. I was actually um, up a little bit more today. So right now when I grabbed this, I was up to 273. So just keep in mind that the numbers have changed a little bit intraday due to the price action, but this will give you a good idea. And, you know, with this portfolio breakdown, I just want to emphasize, you know, one thing, you know, you won't hear me really talk too much about the entry points and exit points, really, because I think too many people are infatuated with the enter and exit prices of their strategy. And for me, I'm not super concerned about the price that I buy at as long as I believe they're fairly valued. And I don't necessarily sell a stock just because it significantly ran up or I have a significant gain. If I still think there's long-term value, I won't try and time the market and I'll just hold for the long-term. And that's kind of the longevity strategy I preach. So if you're asking, you know, if you're curious, kind of my entry point, you're, you're not going to hear me talk too much about that. I'll discuss some of the gains I have in the portfolio, but I'm more concerned about kind of reiterating my portfolio strategy, how it fits in the context of my return and risk constraints that I have, and how these positions kind of overall give me a, um, an overall portfolio risk profile that I'm comfortable with. And that's really how I gear my portfolio and opportunistically, I tend to shift that and change it throughout the year. Really in the beginning of the year, I'll kind of establish, and I've talked about this before, I'll establish kind of where I think sectors are going to outperform. And from that, I'll typically use an ETF strategy to gain exposure to those different sectors. And um, you'll also see I, I hold individual stocks as well. But just to kind of get in overall, my portfolio is 100% allocated to equities. And that's just my long-term long term horizon. I really believe in equities. And 
I, I don't think bonds make a whole lot of sense to me right now, just given my comfort level um, for future growth. And I just, you know, a lot of you guys might view my um, contrarian investment style as a little bit too risk averse, but I think just off the bat, 100% allocation equity is risky in and of itself. But as long as you're comfortable with that going forward, I think it's a great play for the younger generation as well. As long as you're comfortable, um, I think equities present great opportunity. So in the context of my stock portfolio, my public account, uh, that's that's the reasoning behind my 100% allocation of equities. <clears throat> but to kind of get into more of my portfolio, just overall portfolio breakouts, You'll, you'll notice, even though I have been in the markets for almost seven years and I have consistent growth minus a few cash inflows, it's been consistent growth over time. I think you guys have to understand, even though I feel like I have great stock picking ability, I still do not believe I can accurately and effectively do that for my entire portfolio for the long term. Nor do I want to do that because the amount of time and stress that that adds on your on your daily life is just too much. And it's more than I'm willing to bear because I have too many other things going on where I don't want this to captivate 100% of my attention because I don't think that's where I maximize my value. And I don't think it's where I maximize my time. And I argue uh, most of you guys probably should do the same. <clears throat> but yeah, so for that reasoning and that reasoning alone, I'm 60% invested in ETFs. So what that comes out to is about $163,000 worth ETFs and about 110000 and change in individual stocks. So a 60-40 split. <clears throat> and it was closer to 50-50. In fact, it was probably even a little bit more heavily tilted towards stocks in 2020. But as I have kind of seen things in the market shift, styles, size, um, size component shift in the market, especially with the risk of rates running up, although I don't fully believe that is a significant run, run significant risk in the short term. Nonetheless, I felt like there might be a small shift to value. And because of that, I started to dial back some of my specific stock plays because some of them were in tech and dial that more into your value tilted funds. And I really right now, I'm big into your small and mid cap value stocks. And so that's where you kind of saw my my reallocation um, from you know that 50, 50 to 60, 40 ETF for stocks. A lot of that money switched over to those small and mid cap with a little bit trickling into the S&P 500 funds because if you're uncomfortable with what you're seeing, you know, the strategy I'm employing, or if you're new to the market, I argue, just go, just get into, just get into your large cap blend fund, get a little bit of exposure to your small and mid cap, and even get a little bit into the international because you want to diversify across countries. But I still argue a large portion of your holdings as a new investor to really build a solid foundation before you start individual stock picking. Go for the S&P 500. Warren Buffett talks about this all the time. I would not bet against um, U.S. companies. In fact, investing in the S&P is investing 
in the idea of American U.S. based um, companies. And for that reason, I love the S&P. And I know, um, and I know some people would argue that investing in the S&P 500, you don't have control over your money. But I argue you have more control over your money. For the reason, at least for new investors, you have more control over your money because you recognize you don't have the ability to control your portfolio from a, a couple of individual stocks. Um, later down the road, as you get a little bit more sophisticated and a little bit more comfortable with your market strategies, possibly start looking at individual stock picking, but I would not make that represent your entire portfolio. Um, so there's my reasoning behind that. And let's let's dive into a couple of the ETFs that I have. Um, you'll see Arc, <laughs> and you know it's funny. I'm down three and a half percent since I got Arc late last year. You know I I think there's going to be a tilt away from you know high growth. I really do. Um, it's just as is it's significantly overvalued in my opinion, especially with rates where they're at and other asset classes. Um, they're actually performing quite well. Other sectors, real estate's doing doing quite well. And so you're seeing, you know, more asset classes available for institutional and retail investors alike to capitalize on that are not just tech. Because tech in 2020 was this safe haven. And, you know, with ARC, I'm gonna hold it because disruptionary technology, you know, is is hot, I, I suppose, in 2020. But if you're looking for ETFs to diversify your your portfolio, do not just go in ARC. That would be a rookie move, in my opinion. Um, there's more value. There's there's other ETFs out there that I think offer more of a more longevity. ARC hasn't been around long enough for me to really really consider allocating a large portion of my ETF or even my overall portfolio. And you'll see here nine percent, nine and a half percent in arc of just my ETF portfolio. But when you consider um, adding my entire portfolio, it's probably more like six percent. And what else I got? Yeah, the small and mid cap funds, Vanguard, small and mid cap. Those are blends, so they're not just specifically value, and they're not just specifically growth. Because although I think there's going to be a tilt to value, I don't think there's going to be an overall rotation. Um, there's a couple of reasons behind that. I think um, tech in general gets a bad rep, especially recently because of the high valuations, but I still think there's profitable tech. So because of that, the funds that I rotate into, they have more exposure to value, but not complete exposure to value. I still want a little bit of um, exposure to growth, growth type companies, even though they're more expensive. I still think there's value to add in that in that regard. As long as you are, as long as you know that you should be looking for profitable growth companies, not just these speculative um, pipe dream companies that have no demonstrated earnings. I think that's a dangerous game you're playing. You, you see here Vanguard Growth, VUG. I talked a lot about this in 2020. It performed phenomenally. Um, I earned 40% on this fund, and you see that's my largest ETF holding. Since then, I've dialed it back. I actually sold out of it. I believe I was actually 60-something percent allocated. And as I saw kind of a shift occurring, I kind of got out of that fund slightly and got more into, like you see above, the small and mid cap where I have more of like a five and a half, six percent allocation to. 
<clears throat> so there's I still think Bug is fantastic. You got a lot of high quality companies in there. It's because it's large cap. So it's large demonstrated companies um, that I still think over the long run are going to perform well. Although I think they're really priced for perfection right now. So for me, future money that I consistently invest is not going to go into bug right now just because 52% allocation, 52% um, of my ETF portfolio is bug. It's pretty high. So I don't really see a reason to continue to pump money in there right now. Um, so, yeah. Let's see what else do I got here. Nerd. Yeah, Nerd is one of those, um, it's more of a small cap. It is a video game streaming eSports type fund. And I know I've probably talked about this a little bit. Um, great fund. I'm down 9%, but I still have faith in this. It's, it's a new up and coming sector and it's got exposure to international. There's a lot of Chinese-based investments in there. And so for that reason and that reason alone, that's kind of why I geared money towards it because I needed to get out of domestics. As you'll see here, my you know, overall allocation domestic versus international is 92% domestic, 8% international. It was higher before my investment in NERD, so NERD kind of was a play on a new sector that I think is emerging and also kind of that diversification China international play that I was looking for. And what better way to do that? Cause it's not a market I'm super, super confident in to individually pick stocks, nor do I have the time. So I bought a broad ETF to track that. And I think nerd is definitely something to consider if you're looking to get into that space, but not confident in picking successful companies, which I still don't fully believe that I can do that for the long run. Um, let's see, VTI. Yeah, VTI is a total stock market ETF. So it, it invests in every publicly traded US company in, in the stock exchanges. Um, so you get exposure to the NASDAQ, exposure to the S&P, all of that. I think that's, a, that's a, another great bet on the US market as a whole. S&P 500, I got 11.5%, 11, 11.6% in my S&P 500 fund. Again, I've talked about this. I think it's a great investment. I think VOO and VTI are great. Great. Just recognize if you're investing in both, there is going to be an overlay because S&P 500 stocks are in your total market ETF. So just recognize that if you buy both, um, you're not diversifying as much as you think you are. There's no, there's nothing wrong with that. Just understand that you are going to be concentrated in that S and P 500 more than you would traditionally. Um, if you just did a total stock market, so just understand that. Well, I'm also, you know, to go with that kind of more tilt towards international. I picked up this Vanguard World to Total st Stock Fund that invests in every every stock in the world um i have about five percent five percent and some of that is based in the u.s well over half but there's still quite an international tilt as well on there so another great fund to consider and i think a lot of these funds on here these should be again 
each portfolio is different for your individual constraints. I'm not going to give you any financial advice. I'm just giving you my thoughts and opinions. And your financial situation should be or is different than mine. Um, so I think there's just this emphasis of of people wanting this stock advice, of what to pick. And I think you really have to establish your own personal financial and investment goals and what you're trying to achieve before you blindly pick investments based off people's opinions or advice. Um, so that's the caveat. That's the disclaimer there. This is not financial advice. This is my strategy. And hopefully this motivates you to look at these funds because I do think the majority of these funds in here do have a role in your portfolio. I just couldn't make the case at what percentage allocation you should pick. Um, but also to give you guys a little bit of an exciting update to Wall Street Junkie, look, the website's up and running, right? So I want to want to use this time to promote the website. Make sure you, you check out www.wallstreetjunkie.com. There's going to be a great amount of content on there. You're going to get links to all the podcasts. You're going to get links to the blog that I'm putting out. I'm going to write tons of shit that you guys, I think, will have, get value from. But anyways, I'm developing a risk investor risk questionnaire, so to speak. So in the, in the portfolio management space where I work, asset management space, it's very common for people to think that they understand their risk, right? Their risk, their perception of risk. And what, and oftentimes people think they're a lot more um, willing to take risks than they really are. Because at the end of the day, I think it's, it's pretty common for people to say, oh yeah, I love taking risks. But when you actually break it down, you actually see people... Um, feel worse about losing money than they feel better about gaining money, right? So it hurts worse than this. So an equal loss versus a gain, it hurts worse. Um, so if you were to lose $20 versus gaining $20, um, you wouldn't feel as good gaining $20 as you would losing 20. You'd be very upset, right? So it's that kind of uh, prospect theory, so to speak. So keep that in mind. If you think you are at some certain risk tolerance level, I, I urge you to check again. And I'm going to have this on the website soon because I think it's valuable. It's going to be a risk questionnaire. You fill out some questions and it kind of lumps you into these broad risk categories and kind of gives you some ideas of what things to look for allocation wise, what kind of investment style you you might consider. It's not going to be advice, but it gets gets the juices flowing, so to speak, on what you should invest in, right? So enough about that. Yeah, so look, international fund here. I love international. I think it's just from a portfolio and diversi diversification um, standpoint, it's important to get in these funds. I'm not, and again, look, my portfolio, um, I've outperformed the market, the broad S&P 500, quite a few years going forward. Um, now, I'm not going to attribute that necessarily to my, my skill, I think, a lot of that had to do with large cap growth recently. But at the end of the day, I haven't performed super, super stellar. And I'm not super concerned about that. Because look, at the end of the day, you're going to get wealthy. You, If you invest in an approach like this, you're going to get wealthy. It's going to take time. It's a disciplined, consistent approach. But it's it's low stress. It's I do not stress about my portfolio. And I think a lot of new investors couldn't say the same thing they're always checking their portfolio every day every hour i check it a couple of times a week i could go a month i don't care 
I really don't care because I'm invested 60% ETFs and I'm diversified across what I think is a great, great set of funds. Um, 60% of my money is in ETFs. So, you know, if, if a couple of stocks in these ETFs freaking go to the floor, I'm not sweating. I'm not sweating a dime. So there, you know, that's my perspective on ETFs. And I think my steady growth is attributable to that. I did not, I've never gotten a, a triple digit return year. I have not since I started the fund or started my fund rather. And I don't think I will in the future. I just don't have the time nor the inclination and really to re- to return a, a uh, triple, to have a triple digit year, I would have to concentrate a large por- portion of my portfolio. A six-figure portfolio, $270,000. I'm not doing that. It's not happening. Um, I'll get to that million-dollar mark in my own way in a steady approach, and I think I'm going to get there um, in no time. I really do. I th- My goal right now is a million by 30 in this portfolio. I think I could do it. Um, I think so because I'm just going to consistently invest. And I'm going to keep my head on a swivel as far as ETFs and rotating in and out. But that's that's a little bit of a side note on my portfolio. The last ETF I wanted to talk about, EMQQ. EMQQ is a um, emerging market, so it's it's small and micro cap, but it's in. Um, so I get that international tilt that I've been looking for, but also it's that e-commerce place or e-commerce. Um, play that I really like. Unfortunately, I'm down 10%, 11%, but that's just an overall slash on the market as we've seen in February. So I'm not super concerned about that. So just kind of to go overall, you know, go over these ETFs. Look, not significant gains in any of these. Um, I will uh, say a caveat to this is I consistently invest in these funds over time. So the gain percentage is a little bit wonky, right? Because as you consistently um, dollar cost average down your game calculations look a bit different especially with my recent cash inflows i i inflowed about a hundred grand into this account uh, that significantly um decreases the quote-unquote nominal gain when you're looking at these funds but still i think these funds are phenomenal great and they're they're gonna get you they're gonna get you wealthy Let's see. Okay, now let's go into the individual stocks. And look, broad uh, stock allocation by sector. Look, IT, information technology, 38%. I've talked about this. It was a lot higher in 2020, which is attributable to my great performance You know, in 2020. I, d- I did great. I-, I did well over 40%. I beat the NASDAQ. I did great. And a lot of that had to do with IT. But I dialed that back, like I said. And I since kind of got in the financials. I've always been in the financials and consumer discretionary. And with consumer discretionary, this 34%, that is almost solely represented by Etsy. Etsy, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, But yeah, that's kind of my sector allocation. So 38% tech in my stocks, which, you know, not, uh, not super high compared to a lot of other investors, but it's still there. Um, and I have industrials too, and industrials tend to perform well where we're at now. Um, and it, in that industrials, that's almost exclusively Uber. Uber is considered industrials. Um, so there's my sector allocation. 
Consumer discretionary, I think, is phenomenal. Financials is phenomenal because as we get into this this economic situation, this economic cycle where we're early expansionary, it's great growth prospects and great prospects for small and mid cap, and even companies that are um, more cyclical in nature. Consumer discretionary um, means that um, discretionary income is spent on these companies. I think it's a great play, right? Because we have stimulus coming. Um, you know, the economy has continued to open. We got the vaccine. So it's kind of that reopening play. And, um, you know, I have funds, ETFs that track um, consumer discretionary. You're seeing that a lot in the small and mid cap space. But in my individual stock allocation, I have that as well. And let's kind of get into a few of the, the stock picks that I have. Um, Let's see here. Let's talk about Square. And Square is one of the, the IT uh, information technology stocks I have. Although there's a caveat I want to. IT tech as a whole kind of got this bad rep. Not bad rep, but it's been looked down upon recently with the rise in bond yields making valuations high. And I don't disagree that valuations are high. I think you also got to understand, though, some of these growth plays are justified to be high priced. The high valuations, they're justified because they have a track record of earnings in financials, strong balance sheets. So, yeah, they're growth companies, but they're not disruptionary, you know, speculative plays. They're not your SPAC plays. They're not your, your, your companies that you're betting on that have zero profitability. They have a track record of success. So that's why you're still seeing me invested in tech. I'm still going to be in it. And Square, I think, is a leader and in the mobile payment world and i'm kind of gonna i'm gonna go over a few stocks i'm not gonna go through them all because i don't want to bore you guys but you guys will have access to this video and I'll, I'll link the the allocation i have you know in the notes or what have you so you'll see it but i'm just gonna kind of go over some of my individual stock plays look square doubles its revenue in 2020 considered a safe haven during 2020 which kind of led to its high valuation. But as I mentioned earlier, just because it's highly valued or valued at a high high level, doesn't, doesn't automatically mean it's a bad company, a bad investment. I will say it's probably priced for perfection right now because of 2020. But that doesn't mean that its future growth prospects aren't promising. So for that reason, I'm a long-term holder. I don't think it's necessarily going to perform phenomenally, you know, in... Um, in 2021 i don't think it's going to do that but i'm still holding because i'm a big believer in square and and, and its mission um but with that said look it's still fit up 15 percent year to date so it's still i'm not going to hate on it too much its return is phenomenal this year but just keep in mind that um i don't think it's going to be a huge winner in the short term it's a long-term play and that's what my portfolio is it's long-term in nature so i'm okay I will also say that Square is the highest valued out of its peers. So you got PayPal, you got MasterCard, you got Visa. And you'll see here, I have positions in all those, all four, because I believe in the financial technology space. And I think they're all four leaders. And I think um, the addressable market is going to be fantastic for all four companies. So I'm, I am very bullish on these four companies. I just happen to be more bullish on Square, so you see that represented in the allocation. I got 11% of my stock portfolio 
individual stock portfolio, I should say, about uh, $12,500 in Square. And then subsequently in Visa, I was a big holder in Visa. That actually represented a large portion of my portfolio pre-2020. Um, I'm still a big believer in it. I just don't think the growth prospects are as phenomenal as Square. So, you know, I dialed back my allocation a bit. You still second highest allocation in the mobile payment space for my portfolio, 9% allocation. What else we got? MasterCard. MasterCard, I still think is a great, great company to hold. Another, I had more just like I had with Visa and I dialed it back and put a lot of it in Square. Still have a 1.5% allocation of MasterCard. Great companies overall. And then where's that last one? PayPal. PayPal, I have a 3% allocation because, again, I believe in all four of those companies. Kind of to bring it back to Square, though. Look, with Square, I think you get the best of both worlds. It's got demonstrated earnings. It's been extremely profitable. Revenues have grown tremendously. 600% since its IPO in 2015. It's considered a disruptionary tech play. But unlike other disruptionary tech plays, it's actually got a history of profitability. So for that reason, I'm okay um, getting a pretty concentrated position in Square. Earnings per share is up 5% in 2020. And one of the biggest things I'm really, really interested in, look, with Square, I've been in Square since really from the beginning of 2017. In the crypto boom in 2017, I kind of thought ahead, I kind of saw the writing on the wall when the bubble popped in the crypto space in the end of 2017. I wanted to find a way to get exposure to cryptos without directly getting invested in too much Bitcoin, Ethereum, you name it. And I saw Square as this kind of, it, in general, generally speaking, it tracks and it's there's correlations between the crypto space and Square, but it's it's not too correlated where if bitcoin had a significant sell-off square isn't isn't going to be damaged too much square is just lending its cash app um, platform to that booming space and they also hold crypto assets as well so this is all points in in this direction where i think square is is preparing for the future you're seeing that with their cash um they're growing their cash, which is which is great for growth. And you're not you don't necessarily see that right now in these disruptionary growth plays. You're not seeing a buildup in cash. And for me, cash is king. You know, especially in this scenario and in, in this market, cash is king. So, Square has it, makes me happy. In 2021, their R and D is ex supposedly supposed to be increased uh, by 41 percent in their operating expenses, which to me. Uh, makes me believe that they're gearing for the future growth. So I'm willing to pay top dollar for it. Uh, and again, you have that profitability in the past, and I think it's going to continue in the future. Am I going to see a significant triple-digit return um, for Square this year? I don't think so, but I don't know. But I'm going to position myself in a way where I'm going to get significant upside, and you see that with 11% allocation. For some of you guys, 11% might not seem like a lot, um, but 11% is a significant amount. In any portfolio, if you, especially when you're talking about in, in an institutional space where they're much more um, cognizant of their risk, a 10, 11% allocation is, is high. I'll give you an example. 
I don't like talking about ARC that much, but Kathy Wood in ARC, they have a 10 or 11% allocation to Tesla, which is very, very high. And um, that get, gets eyes turning when you start rocking a 10 or 11% allocation to one company in an ETF. But so that's my conviction, and that's why I have that uh, allocation there. <clears throat> Like I mentioned, Square is, is when we're talking about forward price to earnings ratios and all those other valuation metrics, it's not a cheap company. It, it's, it's more expensive than, than PayPal, MasterCard, Visa. But I think for good reason. I don't think it's fair to say, hey, they're more expensive, so let's tilt away from Square. Well, no, they're more expensive for a reason. I mean, they have significant growth prospects. They're outpacing growth versus their other competitors. So for that reason, I wouldn't say Square is necessarily overvalued from that perspective. But I do think they're priced for perfection. So if they don't meet their growth, at least in the next year or two, they don't meet those very strict growth projections, I think you are going to see a short-term um, influx in volatility, price volatility on Square. But again, that's not my concern. Square overall, great company. Etsy. Etsy's another one. Look, up 25% year-to-date, and in 2020, up 300%. And what you'll see here, Etsy, let's look at this. Etsy represents 34% of my, my individual stocks, 34% of it's in Etsy. You, you'll see 32% gain, although, to be honest, to be fair, I added to that position over time and added significantly towards the end of 2020 where the growth wasn't as phenomenal. But still, I... I, 32% is, is phenomenal. But I will say, when I first got into Etsy pre-COVID, pre-COVID, I was up you know, 200%. And then when I cons consistently added more, that, that's where you're seeing kind of the uh, dilution of my gain. Um, the reason why I really like Etsy, though, going forward, they're sitting on cash. Cash is king. They have great growth prospects. They have profitability prospects. They're sitting on $1.7 billion in cash and short-term investments. Great for future projections. And also with the management piece of Etsy, I really look at management and how they adapt to changes in the market. And I think Etsy did phenomenal with their mass sales. They had triple-digit mass sales as far as their, their revenue is concerned. But even when you take mass sales out, their, their earnings revenue growth was was triple digits as well so you couldn't just make this the case that etsy was um just solely relying on mass that's not entirely true so i th still think there's great growth prospects there and also look i think etsy pre-2020 was a niche company they weren't really on many people's radars but they have since become the fourth largest e-commerce site and i'm a big believer in etsy overall and you're seeing that in my conviction in my 34% allocation, which is huge. I mean, that is huge. And if you're looking at that and saying, really, 34%, that's huge to you? Yeah, that's huge. And if if uh, you don't think 34% is huge, I think you need to, again, go to my website and check out the risk questionnaire that's coming out soon. But yeah, 34% allocation, very, very, very large. But I'm very happy with how it's done. And it actually... That allocation used to be a lot higher. I've dialed it back since a little bit just because I wanted to pay myself from the gains I experienced in 2020, but I still am leaving a large of my conviction in the stock, 34%. So 
see what else we got i'll go over a couple more oh one last piece with etsy look strong balance sheet like i talked about 1.7 billion in cash but also look their long-term debt is is 1.1 and a lot of that is financed at these rock bottom rates so it's it's fantastic for growth companies who already have cash they're 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 positioned greatly if they're investing now that is so cheap it's great so there we go that's etsy for you uber uber's another one look uber's cash burn 23 billion since its ipo back in june of 18 i believe uh, that gives people worry and for good reason but it ipo'd back you know two and a half almost three years ago at 48 dollars we're getting near those ipo prices ipo levels and for that i think you get you get this at a little bit of a value a little bit of a discount um because i think there's significant growth in uber it is it has shown that it, it can um it can adjust adjust fire adjust its strategy on it on the turn of a dime right with covid right it's 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 um ride sharing ride share bookings were down 47 percent, but their um their delivery bookings for food up 128 percent year over year so they're able to shift their shift fire and they profited off off this pandemic and i like that in a management style and i like that from a company perspective and the fact that it's near 48 dollars ipo price Look, I continue. I've bought some more Uber recently. And look, let's see my allocation. I believe it's, ooh, let's see here. Yeah, 12, 12.2% in Uber. $13,500. I love Uber. 93 million monthly active users. Uber is doing an excellent job. You know, it's more of a speculative growth play. I will say that. It doesn't have the demonstrated profitability that I... Um, usually look for but it is a household name so i i give them exception everyone knows uber uber's been positioning itself from a, a merger's perspective that gets me excited i believe they acquired postmates and they also acquired another alcohol delivery service back in 2020 so i think they're doing the right moves to get profitable sooner rather than later um, let's see you see microsoft you see let's see what else we got yeah, Microsoft's a big one. Look, I love Microsoft. I'm not as heavily invested in it now because I'm trying to capitalize off trends in the market, um, at least sector trends and really other companies that I think are going to outperform Microsoft in the near to midterm. But still a great, great blue chip to have to your portfolio. And if you don't think so, I think you need to look at its balance sheet. It is positioned where it's going to be around for a very long time. There's no doubt about it. You don't have to get super, super sophisticated with your strategy and find these these next home runs. I think Microsoft delivers to its shareholders. It consistently delivers to your to its shareholders. So that's my reasoning behind Microsoft. And look, you'll see. Look, none of the gains on on these stocks this year. A lot of it. Look, I've been shifting my portfolio around, so you're seeing that I had significant um, capital gains in 2020. So that's why you're seeing. I had a significant tax bill, so that's why you're kind of seeing my portfolio shift around early 2020. So the a lot of these gains aren't that phenomenal, but I don't claim to be a phenomenal, um, to get phenomenal returns every year. 
I just I aim for consistent growth in my portfolio, and you're seeing it here. <clears throat> JP Morgan, six and a half, seven percent allocation. It's a large bank. Enough said. I've talked about banks a lot. I think banks are great exposure to increase in, in rates, which we will eventually see at some point. And I think they're a value play. They offer a little bit of a dividend. So they kind of, you know, it, it adds to your total return and it's kind of a hedge against um, short-term stock price volatility. So JP Morgan, it is brick and mortar. It's a huge blue chip. Can't say enough about it. And again, I'm up 18% since I opened that position actually just in November. So I'm actually really happy with JP Morgan. And financials overall, which I've talked about a lot, that's why you're seeing you know rather large 16% of my portfolios in financials. So that's the reason why. Uh, financials are the second best performing sector behind energy uh, this year. And I think they're going to continue to do well in 2021 and into the future. Let's see what else we got. I think one of the last ones I want to go over is AB. AB is my small cap um, asset manager. I've talked about this one a few times. When I banked this initially, let's see. So I'm up 30, 38%, although that's kind of diluted because I've continued to add to that over time. But my initial position that I got in middle of 2019, that, that would be up triple digits. Absolutely. I got in it at, um, it was like, Twenty dollars, I, I I believe it was. I was up, yeah, it was like twenty dollars. And you know, now let's see what what where's AB trading at currently? Um, let's see, AB's trading at uh, thirty nine thirty nine dollars forty seven cents. So yeah, again, AB can't can't speak highly enough highly about it. Um, again, nine percent allocation to AB, <clears throat> and another reason why like. Look, the dividend yield was phenomenal. When I initially banked it, it was like 9 or a 10% dividend yield, which is great, right? It had history of increasing its dividend. It had longevity in its dividend. It was a stable dividend. It made sense. Plus, it was a small cap, and I and I had great expectations. That it was actually going to be a great asset manager in the future. It's increased its um, net fund inflows. Their funds are performing better. Over the market, I think this year, 43% of its funds are currently beating the market, which is good. But if you're thinking, you're like, really, 43%? And again, it's great. It's great for financials. It's actually great. And that is also the reason why I really preach ETFs is, look, 43% is great for um, banks and active managers. But if you're thinking 43% is super great, if you think you can beat asset managers, Think again. That's why I really, really um, harp on index funds and passive investment strategies. Because look, if you're seeing something like AB who's performing well when 43% of their funds are outperforming the market, which is great, but really 43% and you think you can outperform these professional asset managers, I, I think you have to reevaluate your strategy. And so that's where I'm at. Um, I will still opportunistically invest in individual stocks, as you see. 40% of my portfolio is still in individual companies. But that's my conviction right there. Um, 
And so AB, great. And in 2020, right post-COVID, right when COVID hit, like March, April, the dividend yield was 16%. So I bought more AB. I think I added like four or $5,000 in AB as soon as I saw that dividend yield at 16%. I can check currently. Let me check what AB's current dividend yield is now. Let's see what do we got here. Yeah, seven and a half percent. And what you're seeing there is just just by function of its its stock price appreciating, you know, dividend yield is a function of dividend over stock price. So naturally, when a stock price goes up, which is which is great, you're going to see that dividend yield go down. So just your return component shift. So less of my return is coming from dividend and it's shifting over to capital appreciation. I'm going to continue to be a long-term holder in AB, but there's my kind of take on that. So I hope, you know, this that's pretty much it. Right? I have a few other stocks, nothing I'm really, really super interested in talking about. Um, other than, look, Dropbox and Zoom, I'll t- talk a little bit about them. I think they're just great, great plays. When I think of what happened with COVID and some of the structural or permanent changes, I think work home efficiency work from home efficiency rather, I think is here to stay. I think companies are are understanding the value add. And I think Dropbox and um, Zoom are prepared to take advantage of this structural shift. And so you're seeing 5% of my individual stock portfolio is allocated to Dropbox. And then Zoom, Zoom video communications, which I'm sure you've all heard. That's how I do some of my podcasts. Up, um, I have a 3% allocation. And all these stocks have, have done pretty pretty great for me. Some of them are in the red. Um, some of them are. That is also having to do with just the overall tech correction. But I still have great prospects. And I hope you see here a lot of my emphasis on my portfolio in general, especially with the individual stock picking, is, is on quality. Um, to that though, you might see Naked. Naked is one of those um, pump and dumps that Reddit was talking about. I decided to buy it just because my hope was to ride it in the ground because I was curious to see what happens if a stock gets delisted. Um, so I'm gonna hold this. I'm gonna hold till I die, baby. I got diamond hands on Naked. But yeah, don't take that seriously. Um, that I think I just have one one share. It's like 66 bucks. I'm I'm down 60 percent. But that's just me kind of um, giving the middle finger to Wall Street bets because I think it's funny. Um, yeah, so that's my portfolio. Again, just over $270,000, 26 years old. I don't think I've done anything phenomenal. I think it's been consistency, consistently invest every month, every year. When I was working in corporate America, for those of you who know, I was, I was working in... Um, in the institutional trading space. So any additional money I had, right? Any additional money I threw straight to my portfolio. And that's how you're seeing that account value rise over time. It wasn't that I was swinging for the fences. And I I think you guys see here, none of my, none of my picks are what I would consider the swing for the fences home runs. I'm not trying to swing for the fences. I'm trying to invest in, and things that I use and things that things that I have faith in from a quality perspective, a growth perspective. That's my portfolio. Hope you guys enjoyed. Peace.
As always, thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to next week's podcast. Stay hungry, guys.